Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dedder from the Comment and Analysis Desk. Some 100 days after Britain voted to leave the EU, Theresa May has not yet given any meat to her claim that Brexit means Brexit, says George Parker, the FT's political editor. As the country sees a huge upheaval in politics, the Prime Minister's speeches at the Conservative Party conference will be scrutinised for clues not only to her preference for a hard or soft break from the EU and how she'll deliver her serious social reform, but also on how she'll wield the reins of government after her cabinet purge of Cameron supporters and her temperament. What is Mayism all about? Theresa May, Britain's Prime Minister, dominates the country's post-Brexit political landscape. A leader crowned by her party without a real contest, she surveys a routed opposition Labour Party and glimpses a decade in power. She can do just about anything, says Oliver Letwin, David Cameron's former policy chief. But Mrs May is already facing a test of her leadership. Some 100 days after Britain voted to leave the EU, forcing the resignation of Mr Cameron, Mrs May has yet to fully explain how she will respond to the biggest upheaval in UK politics for a generation. Nor has she gone beyond the weary soundbite, Brexit means Brexit. Mrs May, who turned 60 on Saturday, made her name as an austere Home Secretary, with a tough line on immigration security. But her vision for the country is only slowly coming into focus. Her critics claim the highly centralised style of working she adopted at the Home Office is unsuited to her new role. And as Brexit approaches, there are growing fears in the City of London that Mrs May's focus on controlling immigration and her dilution of the role of the Treasury at the top of government could see her opt for tougher border controls over open markets. Welcome to Home Office Britain, says one top Whitehall official. Mrs May has two chances to assert her authority in the coming days as her Conservative Party meets in Birmingham for its annual conference. On Sunday, she gives her first big speech on her approach to Brexit. On Wednesday, she'll flesh out her promise to build a country that works for everyone. The two speeches are linked. Mrs May believes the 52% of Britons who voted to leave the EU in June were fed up with high immigration, but they were also motivated by a feeling that they had no stake in globalisation. She said in July, shortly before entering Downing Street, make no mistake, the referendum was a vote to leave the European Union, but it was also a vote for serious change. Mrs May argues that many voters felt the rules of the game were now rigged in favour of the privileged few, and that they had lost control of their day-to-day lives. She hopes to design a British solution to a global problem. The early criticisms of Mrs May fall into two categories – First, that she lacks the policies to deliver what she calls her serious social reform. Second, that her reluctance to delegate makes her ill-suited to being Prime Minister, where the decisions, particularly relating to Brexit, are about to come thick and fast. Few politicians arrive at the pinnacle of their career having left so little political trace. 
Mrs May, an efficient but unflashy Home Secretary between 2010 and 2016, rarely ventured outside her brief. According to a former colleague, she's a person who really believes that their function in life is to make things better, neater, more organised and just a bit more effective than they used to be. Mrs May was known at the Home Office for her tough approach on immigration, although the annual net migration figure rose to 330,000 before the referendum. But she was liberal on issues like gay marriage and tough with the police on reform. She campaigned half-heartedly for Britain to stay in the EU. In short, she was hard to pigeonhole. Journalists took to reading blog posts by her luxuriantly bearded aide Nick Timothy, now her Joint Chief of Staff in Downing Street, to divine what Mayism might be. The fact that Mr Timothy's hero is Joseph Chamberlain, not a Tory but a radical liberal, often credited with developing town hall socialism, only muddied the waters. Mrs May's only major policy statement, shortly before becoming Prime Minister in July, was a classic piece of political cross-dressing, heavy on labour themes such as industrial policy and a crackdown on irresponsible behaviour in big business, in quotes, and a more protectionist approach to foreign takeovers of key industries. Yet on taking office, her first big policy move was a return of Britain's grammar schools, an idea only previously espoused by the populist UK Independence Party, harking back to the selective education policy of the 1960s. One Conservative MP from the South West lamented, We're tacking to the right. We're retreating to our electoral comfort zone. Mrs May's eclectic policy pitch is intended to extend her appeal into working-class areas, hitherto battled over by Labour and UKIP, towns that were at the forefront of the Brexit vote. Her lack of ideological clarity doesn't seem to have concerned the voters so far. A YouGov poll this month gave her a net approval rating of plus 31, and that compares to a rating of minus 40 recently for the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. The Prime Minister's allies say she simply wants to look at things that don't work at the moment, from underperforming schools to a lack of regional growth and bad corporate behaviour, and do something about it. It's a pragmatic approach, but some believe it's less impressive than it sounds. Mrs May's decision to purge many supporters of David Cameron from her cabinet, most notably George Osborne, the former Chancellor, and also including Mr Letwin and former Education Secretary Nicky Morgan, was billed by her team as a sign that she was leading a completely new government. But Mr Osborne argues that Mrs May has changed little so far and the Cameron modernisers are waiting to see proof that the Prime Minister has the policies to chart a new direction. This purge has allowed her to make a break from the past, but it could store up trouble for the new Prime Minister if things start to go wrong. A House of Commons majority is, after all, only 17 seats. There's even less clarity over how Mrs May intends to reconcile her twin objectives for an EU Brexit negotiation, which is expected to begin next year. Control over borders and good access to the single market for British companies. EU officials say they are shocked by the level of preparations in London. One European official who recently met Mrs May says they are nowhere, nowhere. But across Whitehall and in Britain's financial services sector, there is a feeling that the Brexiters have the upper hand. They want a clean break from the EU, meaning an exit from the single market and customs union and a fresh trade deal with Europe. Downing Street insists that work is proceeding well across Whitehall to prepare a negotiating strategy, but Mrs May knows that the party's long-standing divisions on Europe will reopen the moment she announces her preference for a hard or soft break with the EU.
Even the most basic questions are yet to be answered. Ministers are waiting for the Treasury to complete a paper on whether Britain could leave the customs union, with the attendant paperwork checks and delays, without causing serious harm to the British economy. Pro-Brexit ministers are sceptical about the Treasury's advice, accusing the Department of fanning Project Fear in the referendum campaign. The influence of the Treasury over European policy has declined under Mrs May, who frequently clashed with Mr Osborne in the last government as she tried to control immigration and the former Chancellor tried to retain maximum Labour mobility. The same arguments are still being played out now. Indeed, the Treasury's dominant position in the Whitehall hierarchy is weakening generally, as Mrs May turns to colleagues with whom she worked on security and immigration while at the Home Office. The City of London fears securing the border may become a higher priority than protecting financial services. One banker says, When we meet some of the pro-Brexit ministers, we're always reminded that the city warned that lots of business would move to Frankfurt if we didn't join the Euro. It's tough getting a hearing. Mrs May told colleagues she was unimpressed on a recent trip to New York by the aggressive lobbying she faced from Wall Street bankers who wanted the city to retain full access to the single market. Mrs May's new principal Europe advisor, Oliver Robbins, started his career at the Treasury but has been for many years immersed in intelligence and security issues as Deputy National Security Advisor. Mr Timothy, who voted for Brexit, and Fiona Hill, her co-chiefs of staff, who formed her Praetorian Guard at the Home Office and are now her closest advisers in Number 10, are steeped in the politics of security, not the complexity of EU passporting for financial services. According to one Cameron-supporting Tory MP, it's obvious the Treasury is not the centre of influence it was under Osborne. Philip Hammond, the new Chancellor, remains the most powerful cabinet advocate of a soft Brexit, and his friends say that he's close to Mrs May, a view confirmed by Number 10. A cabinet member agrees... Then natural allies and partners. He's a strong force. With pressure to deliver on Brexit on a short timescale, questions have been raised about whether Mrs May has the temperament to deliver. One minister says her hands-on style is weird. I don't think she's close to anyone except for six people in her office. The Prime Minister makes great play of the fact that she is in charge and makes the big calls herself. She explained to reporters, I don't just take an instant decision. I actually look at the evidence, take the advice, consider it properly and then come to a decision. Delegation doesn't come easily to her. Friends say that she's finding it uncomfortable adapting to her new situation where it's impossible to be across all policy issues but they say that she knows she has to share the burden. One close colleague adds she only delegates to people that she knows that she can trust and that takes time with Theresa. One Conservative with years of experience in government says... She micromanages incredibly. She doesn't make decisions. She just asks for more information. As chief executive, you've got to be delegating stuff down and know your own mind. Whitehall only works if you keep the momentum up. Things are getting clogged up. Her meetings with ministers are functional, to say the least. She opens a folder and says, right, there's no small talk. But some ministers prefer that style of government over that of Mr Cameron. One says, I find that she's accessible in Cabinet and in Cabinet committees, it's less formal. It's more of a conversation, less of a performance. Senior civil servants, stung by the idea that power has passed to a political clique around Mrs May, insist that Cabinet government is proceeding in an ordered, structured way, with proper ministerial discussions, policy papers and Cabinet committees. Mr Cameron, by contrast, often hammered out policy in advance with Mr Osborne. 
But while Mrs May has broadened the circle of advice she receives early in the process, she still insists on taking the big decisions herself. While Mr Cameron made an early start and worked briskly through his red box, official papers requiring decisions, before breakfast, Mrs May's team says she meticulously ploughs through her boxes at both ends of the day. At the Home Office, she would sometimes make big decisions in the early hours. With Brexit looming and a programme of social reform only just taking shape, the decisions facing Mrs May will be some of the biggest to face a British Prime Minister in peacetime. It may become a familiar sight to see the lights in the Downing Street flat burning late into the night. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.